on the very idea a philosophy podcast hello everyone brutally cold late december weather Almost New Year's, just after Christmas. Merry Christmas, yada, yada, yada. I'm getting right into the game today because I got a lot to say about today's quote. So, let's, uh, let's get to the chorus. Let's play the game. Usually I say a quote from a philosopher and you have to guess who said it. But today, I want to uh, say a quote from an evolutionary biologist. And uh, you can try to guess who I'm talking about. He's quite well known, so I feel it's still a uh, fair sport. I'm just excited to talk about him based on something uh, I read recently. I got to work uh, that load of trivia that usually occupies my time, my brain space. I got to work it into this podcast somehow. It's very cathartic when I can. So here we go. This guy, uh, he asked us to imagine evolution as a VHS tape. It's kind of a dated that uh, plays out its progress. You know, let's imagine evolution as this VHS tape that plays those, its progress, you know, and the one that we're on, the VHS tape that we're on, is the one where we, you know, where we are now. So let's imagine rewinding that VHS tape. He said, any replay, any replay of the videotape of life would lead evolution down a pathway radically different from the road actually taken. This quote, when I first read it, it had, you know, had a huge impact on me. It's, uh, I'm not in any way an evolutionary biologist, but it really helped put the uh, final nail in the coffin for me. Well, it helped me understand how evolution was not teleological. Not that anyone ever said it was, but you know, you kind of naturally think of that way. You know, evolution was heading towards a direction of producing an intelligent species like humans. Yeah, you know, why not? Anyway, here it is again. Here's a quote. Any replay of the tape of life would lead evolution down a pathway radically different from the road actually taken. So, if we imagine a butterfly effect type scenario, small, seemingly insignificant changes could have likely led us down a multitude of uh, radically different uh, paths. We didn't have to end up here with uh, leopards with spots and humans with knee joints. You know, it didn't have to be this way. A few more hints. This guy, the guy who's from the quote, he was a huge baseball fan and appeared as himself in a Simpsons episode. Well, his voice appeared, or was heard. Not really sure how to refer to someone being in on a cartoon. But, you know, you know what I mean. Anyway, let me count down here. Five, four, three, two, one. This quote is from none other than Stephen Jay Gould, American paleontologist. And from what I heard, he's a wonderful human being who, uh, though nevertheless, got himself in his fair share of academic dust-ups, especially when you're taking on people like uh, like um, Richard Dawkins. Here he's uh, saying that no outcome in evolution can be predicated from the predicted from the start and that any resulting pattern that could possibly emerge after a rewind would be just as um, evolutionary logical evolutionarily logical as what we got now and the reason i was thinking about this recently is that this quote may be in part wrong you know or it may be overstated 
you know, what I, and I used to think, I thought it was a truism, you know. The tape of life may not be as random as that quote would have you believe. Some evolutionary results are much more likely than others on our hot and salty planet. Hmm? Our options for responding to the Earth's environment are somewhat limited, given biology, given the limits of biology. And here's one example. The lowly crab has evolved a number of time. You know, all those crab species out there, they're not necessarily cousins. Well, this recent headline from uh, Popular Mechanics, it says it all. Animals keep evolving into crabs, which is uh, somewhat disturbing. Very uh, clickbaity title. And it worked because I uh, clicked on it. And it was not let down. Uh, groups of crustaceans have evolved into crabs in five completely different contexts. It's pretty amazing. As they say in the article, the long arc of history truly bends towards the crab. So, there's that. The Earth as a global ecological niche is very kind to the hard shell shufflers and the nasty pinchers. And on to the main of the episode. Today, I would like to talk about science, specifically the uh, idea of uh, scientific realism. Does uh, science tell us about how the world actually is? I want to look at perhaps the most famous argument against, which is Thomas Kuhn's incommensurability argument. Kuhn's incommensurability argument was my uh, it was my first introduction to, into philosophy when I was taking a course called Natural Science in my first year. I never took any actual philosophy courses in my first year, but this argument, Kuhn's argument, helped convince me to do so. So much uh, the better or worse for myself and the world and uh, your uh, ears. That's not to say that I it's not to say that I found Kuhn's arguments uh, convincing. Rather, I found it uh, kind of unsettling. But uh, well. Anyway, let's get into it. Why is it unsettling? Now, there's no notable argument in favor of scientific realism, not on the level of Kuhn's argument against. Because, you know, scientific realism, the best argument for it is not really an argument at all, but the collective body of scientific knowledge and how it allows us to master our environment. We tend to think science is a shizit when it comes to describing reality because our whole life is... Pretty invested in this science thing from the moment in the morning when we brew our coffee. Take a shower with modern plumbing and probably in the biggest daily testament of faith when we drive across the bridge to work. But Kuhn says that uh, a certain type of faith in science is um, naive. Sure, we may get mastery of the world, but science does not bring us closer to an objective truth. And our error in thinking is based on the false idea that knowledge is cumulative, that it accumulates. We tend to think that as we learn new things about the universe, that new knowledge is a progression as it builds on previous knowledge. It discards the errors and shores up the foundation, so to speak, and a cumulative theory of knowledge. You know, it comes to us quite naturally. That's how we think of acquiring knowledge. For example, when we learn a second language, you learn things cumulatively. And it's a clear buildup over time that allows us to progress, but also it allows us to correct earlier errors 
that we previously made when we were at a more beginning stage and to be embarrassed of those errors when we recollect on them. So our personal intimacy with knowledge could lead us to the idea that disciplinary knowledge, like science, you know, builds up over time. Very natural. Now, let's go a little bit about Kuhn. Let's put brakes on that, go a little bit about Thomas Kuhn. He's an American philosopher and physicist who was born in 1922 and died in 1996 and taught in Harvard and Stanford and other places. Now, interestingly enough about Thomas Kuhn, he did his university education in physics and only switched over to um, uh, philosophy after uh, completing his PhD. He had uh, three years of complete academic freedom as a Harvard Junior Fellow studying physics, which sounds very nice, and his idle brain did the devil's work, and he switched over to um, from uh, physics to uh, philosophy. We can speculate probably that uh, this move made his parents worry at least a little bit, as such a shift... Uh, tends to do. From that point on, Kuhn, he focused on the history and philosophy of science. And when you read his words, you can kind of tell that his formal education is not in, not in philosophy because, well, he's, uh, and I hate to say this, but he's, he's quite readable. Um, and that's what sets him apart. His writing doesn't have that tortured rigor that defines analytic philosophy and uh, that I've grown to love, though he did work within analytic philosophy. So, Kuhn publishes The Structure of Scientific Revolutions in 1962, and this is the work that we focus on today and the work that the world focuses on. Uh, and, and this is the book that outlines his science does not proceed as development by accumulation of accepted facts and theories model. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kuhn says that there are long periods of uh, conceptual continuity where progress does occur within the parameters of the concepts that define that continuity. And this is most of the time in science. The majority of time is spent not within periods of scientific uh, revolution, right? So this means group progress does occur in science, right? Well, Kuhn says that no. There is no way to make sense of the idea of progress in science between revolutions. A new revolution in scientific thinking is more of a jump into unfamiliar territory than a step up on the ladder. So, Kuhn refers to these uh, quiet periods of conceptual continuity as um, normal uh, science. Here there are a stable set of beliefs, theories, concepts, jargon that form a paradigm in which a scientist thinks and conducts experiments within. This stable set of beliefs and concepts is a paradigm. I think we can think of the paradigm in uh, two ways, expanding uh, a bit on Kuhn here. There is the all-encompassing paradigm that the scientist inhabits, where he can't really fathom reality or science on the outside of it. And it takes the ev revolutionary figure to make changes, you know, this, these singular figures. Like, you think of the, the American pragmatist philosopher Richard Rorty. He calls these revolutionary thinkers people with obsessional kinks in the brain. That they, it, These obsessional kinks allow them to just focus on small incoherences within the web of a paradigm until the thing comes crashing down. Um, you know, obsessional kinks, it's kind of a funny way to word it. it seems, but it does seem to describe the focus required in doing philosophy. Now, 
Another way to understand paradigm is a slightly more looser way. It's one that's maybe easier to get ahead around. This is the way that scientists will uh, word things like research proposals in order to get funding or grant money. Often the most natural way to put what they are interested in investigating is in other words. But scientists will tailor their proposals tailor the sentences, the words, so as to appeal to the consensus of the scientific community, or at least to those in the scientific community who dole out the money. They tinker to the audience. Under this uh, looser description of paradigms, it seems easier to understand how revolutionary thinking might take place because people can routinely think outside the box, but uh, change their way of thinking to conform to a scientific community. Anyways, probably the most radical paradigm shift in science or at least the one I'm most familiar with, is uh, the break from Aristotelian science with its paradigm centering around the concept of telos or end goals for inanimate objects like chairs, tables, as well as animate objects like frogs in our modern Newtonian-based science where inanimate objects certainly don't have end goals and observational third-person reports anchor a cause-and-effect-based explanatory system. Though, you know, we, we do contrast these... Uh, Aristotelian uh, theories of science and uh, Newtonian theories of science. But uh, interestingly enough, philosophers like Daniel Dennett, who's no Aristotelian, recently has called for a reinstating of teleological explanations within our scientific accounts as evolutionary genetic behavior and certain elements of cognitive science only make sense with, within when certain teleological goals are built into the framework. So we might actually return a little bit to... Aristotelian teleological theories in the future in our sciences. Anyway, moving on. So, everything is cool and uh, running smoothly during a period of normal science. These non-revolutionary periods. This science, it's, it's mature, and we can get a sense within its paradigms, but uh, only within them, those paradigms that uh, measurable progress can be made. But there's two other periods of science that often overlap, um, and, you know, the one that he terms scientific revolution. But there's also another interesting category that Kuhn uh, uses of immature science, um, or, well, perhaps put it better way, science at an immature stage. So this is when science over a given topic has no single governing paradigm, no consensus of generally accepted facts and methods. In this immature period, each researcher or a group of researchers must fumble around and start from scratch, more like a, you know, a new world explorer. You know, carving out lands in a new ground. I don't know. Anyway, there's opportunities for uh, proliferation of approaches to the uh, subject matter. Kuhn says that uh, optical theory, you know, optical theory, how we see, how our eyes sees objects uh, in Newton's time was, you know, was in this state of immaturity where different groups thought of light as either a particle emitted from material or a wave, but not both. Um, as waves vibrating in ether, you know, that old scientific concept, ether. I guess there's still something called ether, but anyway. And as interaction between the thing seen and the eye, which kind of is. But Newton thought it was corpuscles, light. And uh, today we see that light can be described both as a particle, as, you know, photons, 
as photons, and also as waves. It can be described in both ways. Now, during this period of immature science, combative schools of thought are doing something more akin to something more akin to politics, aiming to deliver a package that best makes sense to citizens, in the politics case, or other scientists, in the scientist case, respectively, rather than accumulating a set of knowledge as it would in normal science, in mature science. So this accumulation as an underlying idea explaining progression of knowledge, it, it just doesn't work here, this idea of, of progression of knowledge as accumulation. And uh, now, so we talked about immature science. Uh, let's talk about the bread and butter. Let's get in the bread and butter. If the idea of progress as accumulated facts doesn't work for immature science, well, it certainly doesn't work for scientific revolutions. Well, what happens when a scientific revolution occurs? when a scientific revolution occurs. Well, basically what happens to uh, all that old uh, accumulated knowledge through the years, decades, centuries of conceptual continuity? Well, Kuhn thinks we need to just toss them. Well, why? Why do we got to toss these uh, beliefs wholesale, the bulk of them? Well, and here's an interesting point. Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions was originally printed as an article in the International Encyclopedia of Unified Science, which was published by the logical positivists of the Vienna Circle. So, the logical positivists, they also did some publishing back in their day. So, in appealing to the logical positivists' linguistically oriented leanings, he used language and verifiability to appeal to his audience. And this is a good example of paradigmatic thinking when speaking to a group obsessed with the philosophy of language, use a language-based argument. Now, that's not to say he was on the side of the logical positivists. That's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, he directly argued against the logical positivists' idea of science because the logical positivists thought that science was a matter of accumulating knowledge over time. And science was the one true realm of knowledge that all other disciplinary knowledge tried to attain. So science was, according to the logical positivists, a variety of objective knowledge. They were very much scientific realists. So what was Kuhn's argument? That although he used the language of the logical positivists, he used it to disprove their goals. Basically, Kuhn says that when a revolution does occur between these paradigms, a true sentence of the old scientific paradigm will not be true or false within the framework of the new paradigm. It's not that it will be false. If it's false, we can judge that as accumulation through ruling out incorrect statements. Rather, the statement does not share the same sense in the way it was originally intended in the old paradigm. A concept used in one framework and then applied to the new paradigm they're incommensurable. Incommensurable. Well, what does incommensurable mean? You might ask. It's, you know, it's not a term you float around every day. Well, incommensurable means not capable of being measured. 
the concepts, even if they perhaps they share the same phonetic sound, let's say light or mass, are not able to be judged by the same standards, having no common standard of measurement. So philosophers, especially of the analytic variety, are all hung up on language. And as good philosophers, instead of exercising our hang-ups out of our worldviews, let's allow the demons to compel us and focus on language first. For Kuhn, there are two types of incommensurability, epistemic and semantic. In his landmark book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Kuhn's attack on epistemic commensurability was well-developed, but his notion of a linguistic or semantic incommensurability was underdeveloped, a point which he improved upon in his later part of his career, as I'm sure the uh, analytic philosophers in his audience were sure to remind him about, about what was lacking in his account. Anyway, let's end there. Looking to keep these episodes shorter. And in the next episode, let's look at how our scientific uh, scientific concepts like planet, light, bile, energy change so radically from paradigm to paradigm that we cannot really say that they are the same idea with the same extensions, the same denotations, and intentions anymore. Or can we? Anyway, thank you for listening. On the very idea, a philosophy podcast. Thank you.